The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2016, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This salon is from Friday, June 3rd. Indigenous American Beers, Past and Present, presented by Sam Collagioni from Dogfish Head Craft Brewery and Stan Hieronymus. All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Savor. I love it by the time we get to the third salon. Everybody's really feeling feeling the love. Uh, just to make sure you're all in the right place, uh, this is the room for Indigenous American beers past and present. Uh, my name's Steve Broad. I'm brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, and I will be your host for this evening's salon. Uh, Savor now in its ninth year and well-established as one of America's premier food and beverage events is put on by the Brewers Association. Yes, the Brewers Association. Representing the, the country's small independent craft brewers and also producing the Great American Beer Festival coming up this October in Denver. We have true believers here, I can tell. Um, all of the Sabre Salons are being recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com and will be posted about a week from now on craftbeer.com, your best source for information about the wide or wild world of American craft beer. If you have questions tonight, when you start getting that little thing in the back of your head that says, I think I have a question, go ahead and put your hand up then so I can get out to you with a microphone, or we've got one in the back of the room, so we can get your questions along with their answers on the uh, recordings. Um, and if, if you've got questions in between beers, that's, that's cool. We don't have to wait until it's all to the end. Um, many people jump to foreign shores when they think about historical beer styles. But tonight's speakers remind us that we have heritage of our own as you, they showcase some American beers that predate the arrival of European settlers with their sometimes, shall we say, constrained attitudes about beer styles. I hope you came with a sense of adventure. Please welcome beer writer Stan Hieronymus and Dogfish Fed Head founder Stan, Sam Calagione. Next to him, and we all know how awesome Saver is. You were in the you were on the floor. Steve's given up a big fraction of his Saver night to hang out and do these seminars. So thank you and, and Laura and everyone that ru that runs these these seminars. Okay, we have beers. It's you, Sam. Oh, well, Stan, maybe uh, Stan, maybe talk about your journey in the in the beer world to start with. I mean, you've been you're a wily vet. <laughs> um. I don't think we're using this mic microphone, so you hear. So we're gonna just lean into it fictitiously. Into it's actually this mic okay. that's working on our. So, um, so, so if you can hear me, okay. This, this, actually, they haven't poured your beer first. I'm excited to try this beer because, um, what th this is collected from oral histories of Apache Indians from the late 19th century. Presumably, we think it goes back much earlier. It's probably an offspring of chicha, uh, a beer that dogfish helped make famous and disgusted most of you. <laughs> so that, that was made by trying to figure out, and, and it's still made in Mexico that way, by it, they're taking corn and chewing on the corn to convert it. Um, what what the Indian Plains Indians did, and we don't know exactly when this happened or how it happened, but it's clearly an offspring of what happened in northern Mexico. You understand that corn slash maize is indigenous to America. Barley is not. So what you like, like in beer that drives beer, that provides the major fermentable, needed to be imported. So there was a long period of time where people tried to figure out how to make corn work as the basic grain in beer. And when you can have the other stuff now, you might appreciate it more. 
So I don't know how many of you have this beer now, but I'm anxious to try it. So just give it a sip. Campfire-esque. So, so um, right hand is sucks, left hand does not suck. I'm watching you. So that's pretty, I mean, that, that's a really nice job by the people at Dogfish because it was kind of rudimentary what was there. Um, you know, what, what the Apache would do is they, they would take this corn and lay it out, basically start to bury it on, on top of some grass, lay it on top of the grass, and, and get the sprouts to begin. So this was the same as the beginning of a malting process that you have with barley. And then, then they would collect it. Um, and then somehow, and this is the magic part, which is not in the history, they would turn this into, they would mash it, and that, that's not what is clear that happens, and they would end up with beer. In almost every case, um, it was a woman who brewed it. Uh, through history, women do most of the brewery. Uh, you know, th this changes over time at the point that beer becomes a money-making product. As soon as somebody said, we can make money off of it, the men said, I'm in charge. <laughs> but in the case of um, the Apache, it was part of their culture. So if... It, when the men, and this is a really quick beer, you, you understand you do the malting, at, at the point you, however they got it to ferment, which was obviously with, with yeast that was in the air, this, this beer had a shelf life of perhaps 36 hours, and then would start to turn sour. Mm -hmm. So the women would make the, when, when the men would ride off to battle, then the women would say, time to get this fermenting. So when they came back, it was part of their culture. So if we were going to call, give this beer a name, it would probably be Huera. So somebody want to ask why? why? Good job. Um, Huera was, was a woman who brewed beer um, in the 1880s. Um, she was the wife of a warrior. And the, the women who, who could make Tiswin, that gave them a certain amount of status within the, within the community. Um, she was also a healer. Um, she counseled warriors before they would go off. And she was Geronimo's. This is an honest to God truth. This is Geronimo's beer. So Geronimo really liked Tiswin. The first time he agreed to go to a reservation setting, part of the agreement was, in his mind, was we get to continue to drink Tiswin. Um, so he struck this deal with the, with the first person running the reservation. Another one comes in and says he's going to outlaw Tiswin. They continue to make Tiswin. Huera makes the Tiswin. They have a giant party. The troops call them and they said, no more Tiswin. We cannot have these Tiswin drink, drunks anymore. And the confrontation goes back and forth. The Geronimo here, actually, it's Huara, learns that they are going, the troops are going to come put them in jail for making the Tiswin. She suggests, let's just break out of here. From, it was called Turkey Creek, uh, which is in what is now Arizona. And they said, to heck with it. We cannot make Tiswin. And they took off in 1885. In May of 1885, uh, about 50 warriors and 100 women. And it took more than 1,000 troops and 15 months to hunt them down before they brought them back to the reservation. And that is simply the power of beer and community. Nice. 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 So it, was, uh, it warmed my heart to see so many uh, uh, left hands go up. Uh, mostly because the, the, the brewers from Dogfish, most responsible for bringing this beer tonight, are in the room. Gentleman with a, the cowboy hat uh, on the on the right, on my right is, is Bob and Amanda, our brewers on the left. Thank you guys. Uh,
So a, a, a dogfish, if you, if you buy a six-pack or four-pack of your beer in 1995, when we opened the brewery, I wrote a little poem that's on the bottom of our, 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 our six-packs, and there's a phrase about how our brewing process is blissfully inefficient, intentionally blissfully inefficient as we search the globe for ingredients. And this is a great example of this. Our, our, our production folks track the hours that we put into different beers, and we just came out with a beer that's on the floor tonight, uh, called Beer de Provence, using the herbs de Provence in a Saison. And it had the same amount of hours going into that batch of beer as this one did. Uh, this one we yielded two five-gallon kegs. You guys are, are drinking one of them tonight. And Beer de Provence, we uh, yielded uh, tens of thousands of cases. Uh, and that's the wonderful thing about, about running an independent craft brewery is we don't have to give a shit about quarterly profits. We can do projects like this that uh, warm our hearts and, and let us look backwards for inspiration uh, as much as uh, we look forwards. And uh, speaking of looking backwards for inspiration, I want to give a massive shout out. This is the 500th anniversary year of the Rhine Heights Kubot, and I know there's a bunch of fellow beer geeks in the room. And when we, wrote, when we started Dogfish, we had a, a slogan that said the Rhine Heights Kubot's nothing more than a relatively modern form of art censorship. Because as we'll see with our next beer, yeah, right? And you feel it out on that floor tonight. How many wonderful ingredients out on that room tonight do not pay a chord to that stupid law? And, uh, and, and I'm going to talk about Stan's book in a second, but um, I think of the first modern beer book that gave brewers the confidence to step outside the Rhine Heights about is, uh, is Charlie Papazian's uh, Joy of Homebrewing. Charlie, put your hand up. Charlie, stand up for a sec, if you will. Thank you, Charlie, for all the inspiration. So I can't count how many hundreds of, of the 4,000-plus brewers were inspired to take baby steps outside the Rhine Heights Kabout because of uh, Charlie's book. So on behalf of all of us, we're uh, thankful for, for, for your leadership. Uh, it's so cool to hear Stan talk about um, you know, only post-industrial revolution was it the men that started making beer. And it was so cool, like serendipitously, when Amanda and Bob were finding the right home to malt this corn. So we spent uh, you know, weeks malting this, this corn to do it the traditional way to make this beer. And they had to find a room that had the right balance of, of temperature that they could kind of take over and, and they could do what they needed to with temperature and light and space. And it was the room at our brewery where uh, our, our female co-workers uh, do their pumping uh, for their children. <laughs> uh, so it was a women-centric room uh, that this, this uh, corn was, was malted in. Uh, and just uh, a quick laundry list. So it was really Stan's idea to do this beer. Our brewery's been brewing beers, uh, giving a high five to history for uh, 19 years, we did our first African Tej and uh, Braggot, and we started doing uh, Midas Touch in 99. But it was Stan, because he very kindly invited me uh, to write the intro to his, his book that's coming out in September called American Grown Beer. I'm hopeful he'll talk about that as the night goes on. It's going to be cool. Um, uh, and, and it was really his work, and then he gave us some great historic context, and th this recipe, unlike a Midas or Jiahu, which we'll have next, which is built from molecular evidence, this was built by, by storytelling, history. Uh, and, and, and the storytelling that Stan did led to our uh, recipe, Amanda and Bob, that took the lead in the brew. But ingredient-wise, it's, it's malted blue and white corn, it's oak-smoked barley, so you smell that, because there wasn't any, uh, you know, malt in the, back in the day was smoked over, over wood. It's applewood smoked barley malt. It's agave nectar. Um, there's mesquite powder, which was kind of an optional back in that day. Some brewers would use it. Maybe Stan will talk about that as well, uh, which gives it that sort of caramely brown sugar notes. Uh, Pilsner malt, because we did want, that was probably the one uh, audible that we gave to make the yeast super happy in this environment. Uh, and uh, about 5, 5.2 ABV, very low MBUs. We did use cluster hops, which were the native hop variety to America in the, in the colonial era. Uh, so we hope you enjoy this, this, this beer. I'm going to ask Stan a question, and, and, uh, and you take it from there. But you mentioned that the indigenous people of the Americas before the uh, 
we all know that story. The, the, the May, Mayflower landed where it did because they ran out of beer in their boat, not because it's where the town they were going. There was a diary entry that said, we're out of this, this, and this, our victuals, but it was mostly our beer. So they went to shore, industrious, risk-taking people, and they tried to make fermented beverages, but as Stan said, there was not uh, barley made. In your research for this book, what, the legends are all over the place. What were the first fermentable sugar sources that our ancestors that came from overseas were, were making, and is that in your book? Well, the, the parts are, first of all, they brought barley in, and it grew okay on the coast. So they could grow two-row barley on the coast. And I'll apologize at this point, because this is where my brain starts to fracture, and I'll sort of jump all over the place. So we'll talk a little bit about barley, which is two-row and six-row. So uh, you got from uh, northern Europe and England two-row barley, which is what we appreciate now. Um, the Spanish brought in six-row barley, and it was much more robust. So it grew very well. And, and inland actually means upstate New York. We're not talking about Minnesota and Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. This is where it grows. Six-row is what needed to work in the United States. So when you, if you look at, uh, you have the introduction of lager in the United States in 1840. In 1850, in the United States, per capita consumption of beer was one gallon per person per year. That's like a goal for this evening. <laughs> <laughs> While you're eating fancy yeah. food. <laughs> um, and in order to ramp that up, there had to be a way for six-row to work. The, reason, the way six-row could work is, so you had, over time, people from the beginning, before the pilgrims landed here in about 1590, uh, there was an island outside the Carolinas where they found maize and they tried malting maize and the, and the dispatches home were this is awesome, it's great. Randy Mosher's theory is you're sending those off to get more people to move here. Uh, in fact, malting corn never exactly worked. Uh, Thomas Jefferson tried it. Uh, there were attempts to do it before that. But corn turned out to be a magic ingredient for American brewers because it cut the six row. That ugly major, until like the last six or eight weeks ago or three months ago, hazy beer was bad. Before New England IPA, murky was bad. So we'll go back in history like a month and say murky is not good. But six row was ugly. It made harsh beer. Corn helped cut that. Corn is not the reason that we had horrible beer choices 50 years ago. It's bean counters and marketers. It's, it's not corn. But what's changed over time, of course, is then corn had flavor. And that's, I, I live in St. Louis, so I apologize for Monsanto. But the, the goal has been to take all the flavor out. And that, those same things happened with beer. So corn is not the evil part. Corn is indigenous. You can make, you do not need to use corn in your beer, but you can and have it be a delicious beer. It's just another ingredient. So go back to what Sam's saying about the Rheinheitske boat. Every time you try and live in ingredients, you are el eliminating a good flavor that somebody could add to beer. That's why it's so, uh, add your own expletive, Evil. stupid. Evil. Yeah. Evil. So this is the first beer. While you guys are finished that one, Steve, I don't know if there's any questions on that, on the first beer or stuff that we've talked about thus far. This is also the moment where we're telling you finish what you got because Laura and her crew are going to bring out beers in about a minute or two. Go ahead, Steve. You're in charge. Nice. I was just actually say more information on the American cluster hops or what, what the indigenous American hops are. Um, in terms of what... So, um, several million years ago, hops uh, originated in Mongolia. 
a million and a half years ago. Some of them split off and went into Europe. Uh, about 500,000 years, or yeah, 500,000 years later, or half a minute, yeah, 500,000 years later, they came to North America. And so you've got two diverse families of hops that are gi genetically different. Almost every hop you have is going to be a cross of those two. So cluster is a cross of hops that came from Europe crossed with wild American hops. You have a few varieties of pure wild American hops now that are being that were bred together to, to make them. So better. they're almost like the equivalent of heirloom apples or pears and right. like single single and, and, and you could you could find some hops growing wild now. Most of them are not good for making beer. So Sierra Nevada has uh, Medusa, which is in their wild American beer that they bring out late each year. And uh, then a new hop, which I'm forgetting, so it is FZ, has an R in it, a B, and a T. You, you brewed with this beer. That, that's, this is the beer you made with the Beer Camp beer. Oh, yeah. So this is the Frank Zappa. We just Zappa. call it Frank Zappa. It is a Frank Zappa hop. It's, na it's named after Frank Zappa. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, and it's brewed in New Mexico. So the American hops, pure American hops are Neo-Mexicanus. Uh, in fact, the Indians would not have used hops, the Plains Indians, because there were no hops growing would there they, at what the would have been So we, we added mesquite to this because there was some evidence of other bittering agents that right. the New World would use to cut down the uh, unfermented sugars and, and, and give some balance to it. Right. It, what was your, uh, in addition to mesquite, what were some other ingredients that the New World was looking to counterbalance uh, the sweetness of the sugar source? Yeah, yeah for the most part, people are going to take, in, in the case of mesquite, so you're, you're using parts of trees. Um, when that, there is a, a brewery in southern Illinois, some of you may have heard, we can do this quick hand raise up thing. How many of you have heard of scratch brewing in southern Illinois? I've heard of scratch. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, or yeah, it's, it's almost two years ago, they decided to start making a series of all tree beers. To looking at a tree and thinking about how many parts of the tree they can use. So they, they do a single birch beer, for instance. Um, so all the liquid in that beer is from the tree sap. So you, you guys may think about maple tree sap as being, oh, that's thick and going to have a lot of sugar in it. At the beginning, tree sap does not. You know, that, that birch is going to be about 1% sugar. Until you cook it down, you do not get syrup. So they're using that for the water. For bittering, they are using dried leaves and, and parts of the branches. Uh, they, additionally, they pull some bark off and toast it for flavor. Uh, this is river birch, not that nice-looking white birch that people make good furniture with for the kids. Um, and it's a really ugly tree. And, and on this tree, there is a mushroom that grows specifically to the tree and will eventually kill the tree. It chokes it. Takes like 200 years. They take the mushroom off of that and turn it into a tea to add the bittering. So blissfully inefficient. Blissfully oh yeah. Inefficient. Wow, this is this is totally. It makes zero sense. Did you try the beer? Um, I have tried the beer. They've done two versions. The first first one turns sour. Um, and they they've sort of begun to grasp sour there. So when, when the, if you have a, a beer from them with what they refer to as their house wild yeast, yep. that's actually their sourdough yeast. The downside to using a sourdough yeast, of course, is you are adding flour to your beer. I don't want to keep coming back to this theme, but now we're back to New England IPAs again, where people are adding flour to their beer to make it cloudy. They, they are making an effort. They don't want it cloudy. They, they, they want it to settle out. Yeah. But they've understood they're going to use all these other ingredients. They're better off going to we're house. Gonna, so we're going to take another question from this, yeah. and then we're going to actually tr have our next beer to stay on pace. Because oh. we got fun shit coming later, guys. 
This this is delicious, by the way. All right. I know someone's chewed this, but no, we didn't yeah. chew it, did we? We 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 this one we didn't <laughs> chew. Sometimes at Dogfish we do. I, I've seen the show, and yeah. I know you chewed it in the show. Yep. And I spit assume, happens. But <laughs> yeah, it happens. Uh, where does where does where does the smokiness come from? This and is this how they made it back in the day? And was this yeah. as smoky as when they made it? back when they were brewing this uh, in the case of the Indians that would not be true in the case of almost everything you had um, before 1800 is you you were you were drying your malt over, over smoke wood, wood smoke and and, you, and and you realize that people were living in cities where everything was smoky they didn't notice the smoke as much because your city, there were fires. That's how you heated and everything. You walked through the air, everything was smoky. A difference would be what kind of wood you used. So you get used when, when you have, um, when Alaskan Brewing made their smoke porter the first time, it drove Jeff crazy because people said it tastes like fish. And he's going, I. You know, I cleaned everything. I don't want it to taste like fish. But Alderwood, when you are in Alaska, that, that's what you smell on the beaches. That's what the yeah. fish smell like, and that's what it brings back to you. So when you have something smoked over hickory, you're thinking bacon. Yeah. Um, and with this one, so, so uh, uh, as we try to be as authentic as we could, so of course the biggest liberty we take with a lot of our beers uh, that come from ancient history or even just hundreds of years ago. So while these beers are around the era of Louis Pasteur figuring out uh, a sterile environment, odds are Geronimo's crew didn't have a sterile la laboratory uh, when they were making this. So bacteria and wild yeast were most likely a factor. Uh, and so, you know, all these ancient beers would have tasted... Uh, more like uh, modern lambics uh, than than any other style because they would have had bacteria and wild yeast, which is, I think, why they were so adventurous about adding other ingredients. Because, like, okay, we know we're going to have to fight through that weird sour thing that happens when we're trying to make something that lets us see the gods. So <laughs> when we're eating food, oh, my God, that's an intense flavor. Let's stuff the shit out of that in our beer. Yeah and see if we can make that okay for when we're trying to uh, see, see the gods, uh, which is probably a good segue. So our choices at Dogfish were an oak-smoked uh, barley and an applewood smoked barley that came from a beautiful little malting company in uh, Hadley, Massachusetts, near where, where I grew up, uh, Pioneer, Pioneer Malting up in, up in uh, uh, Western Mass. So I am going to uh, segue to our second beer. Uh, and this one I'm going to spend the least amount of time on because I'm psyched to bring up a guest for our Back to America uh, uh, finale. Um, but this one was, is more of a context uh, breather for you. And I'm going to ask Stan to... Uh, when he was researching his book, I'll talk a little bit about this beer, but for the second part of this one, the shortest of the three, uh, ask him as he was researching American-grown beers, what countries, I'm going to give you a minute to think about this, okay. what, what countries do you feel were most influential to early American beers or which, which cultures? So think about that. But this one is, when, when I say the Reinheitsquotes, quotes, nothing more than a relatively modern form of uh, art censorship. For context, the Reinheitsquotes quotes exactly 500 years old this year. And this beer that you're having now, Chateau Giahu, is the oldest known fermented beverage in the history of civilization. So by oldest known, uh, who determines that? It's not by uh, poem to Ninkasi, it's from the actual physical evidence of a beer. And there's a tomb called the Tomb um, uh, of Jiahu, or it's the province of Jiahu in China, that was so buried under such intense layers of earth by being sold that a layer of earth kind of turned into metal over it. And when they chipped through it, uh, the, the, they found this beautiful bounty of crockery. Of course, our ancestors you know, figured out uh, pottery, and it was the most beautiful uh, 
luck for modern archaeologists because crockery is porous. So the uh, organic matter that our beverages were made from in history were preserved in the pores of this crockery. And modern molecular archaeologists can pull that out and give us a laundry list of ingredients of what was found there. Of course, it's up to us as modern brewers to uh, figure out the ratios, the ABV, was it carbonated, all that stuff. But they can give us a laundry list actually from the organic matter. Uh, in, in this case of Jiahu, it was sock, it was rice, uh, sake rice, we assume, sake yeast. Uh, there, was, uh, there was some grape evidence, there was some honey evidence, and there was hawthorn fruit evidence, which is a pretty rare fruit in our neck of the woods, but it's more akin to uh, pomegranate. So it's more sour uh, than it is sweet, and that tartness that comes from this beer uh, actually comes from that hawthorn fruit. But it's also what was really cool about the site of the oldest known fermented beverage is it also had the oldest playable musical instruments ever found. There were these hollowed out uh, bird bones that had holes in them like a flute and they're calibrated to modern uh, music uh, notes. And, and this is 10,000 years ago. This is the era when humans shifted from hunting and gathering nomads into settling down to grow crops like, like rice. Uh, and that's the moment that, that this, uh, this, this beer uh, that you're having uh, came from. Uh, so for context, this is as old as, old as it gets. And uh, again, we took the liberty of a single yeast strain, so it's not uh, bacteria-ridden or, or, or wild yeast-ridden because we wanted to show off the hawthorn fruit and, and the rice and the, the, the forethought that these, uh, these, ancient brewer, uh, these ancient brewers had. So when you think of this 10,000 years ago to you researching your book of hundreds of years ago, where did the most influence to early American brewing come from outside of our continent? Um, uh, it, the surprising one uh, certainly would be the Dutch uh, because they settled around Albany, New York. And so some of, actually, you had, at shortly after the Revolutionary, Revolutionary War, you had three major brewing centers in the United States, Philadelphia, New York City, and Albany. And that's where the Dutch settled to begin with. And because people could not grow barley that tasted very good, there were a lot of wheat beers. So culturally, that's where the back background comes from. Um, and our, in, 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 in the Dutch's homeland, was wheat the big fermentable, fermentable wheat, 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 wheat was a gigantic part of it. So, so we think it, and of course this <clears throat> actually goes back when I, when I say the, uh, the Netherlands, so there, you need to recognize that what we refer to as Belgium now is not 200 years old. So that's the lowlands, and that's part of the Netherlands as well. Um, there, within the next few months, we hope um, that there will be a document out looking at the family tree of ale yeast that White Labs has been working at. White Labs and, and uh, a Belgian company or a Belgian scientist. And it, when they look back at that, it will, the parts I've seen are really eye-opening. You realize that we go back to only a few places that we take our yeast from. So it's so, like the Albany brewing scene what, probably had some Belgian DNA to it. At more than likely, a little bit of that. And also, when we start to, if we go back to, if we'll say the most important yeast in um, what's happened in the United States in the last 40 years, it would be known as Chico yeast. 1056. Which is 1056, American Ale Yeast 01, Chico yeast, or Siebel Slat 91, um, which... Steve Dressler only told me about that a couple weeks ago. So that's the maybe the Ballantine yeast, and that leads to Sierra Nevada yeast. That's what we're East talking Coast, about. East Coast, motherfucker. Ballantines. <laughs> Chico lays claim, yeah. but East Coast. And, and so the question is, maybe Ballantine comes from Albany. Nice. So this, this whole trying to figure that sort of thing out. And so, so what's changing when Sam talks about looking to Egypt, 
and talking about expanding what we're thinking about. This is a little more than 20 years old. In 1994, Zymergy magazine um, had an issue that, that was called indigenous and other ingredients. And there, there were no, there was one North American beer in there. What, what we looked at, if, if you live in the United States and you wanted to brew what was historically a local beer, you went and found somebody else's local beer. Um, so what's changed is looking here, if we're looking for local ingredients and realize all these things that we didn't think belonged in beer, uh, because we were as bound by the Rheinheitsgebot as the Germans, um, we begin to recognize maybe they could go okay in beer, and this is an opportunity for Sam to talk about chicory. Oh, I'm not sure what I'm going to say about chicory. That was uh, chicory's. We've been using chicory since '95. I yeah. will say this: finish your Giahu, because we're about to, we're one or two minutes away from pouring our last. Uh, a finale beer and bringing up a, a guest, but uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, so when we opened in '95. Uh, our whole mission was to be the first brewery that made most of our beers outside the Rheinheitsgebot using uh, culinary ingredients, and still today, the majority of our beers are brewed outside the Rheinheitsgebot using uh, um, culinary ingredients. Um, but uh, so locally, there was no real far farmers market movement uh, in the mid '90s, but there was awesome like first-generation coffee roasteries and uh, bakeries. So we worked hard in coastal Delaware to find those folks making that stuff, and we worked with a, a coffee roastery down the road from us and a chicory uh, company out of New Orleans uh, to make chicory stout, which I think may, may have been the first commercial uh, breakfast stout. It's 20, 21 years old uh, uh, this year. Uh, we're doing a big version of it this year called Beer for Breakfast uh, that comes out in November. Uh, it has chicory and coffee, but in a mad nod to our, our mid-Atlantic roots, uh, besides applewood smoked barley, it also has scrapple in it. Uh, yeah. So that'll be coming, coming at you right around the Jewish high holidays. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's going to be a, a wonderful beer. Uh, it shows a, on the labels a pig eating uh, scrapple uh, uh, and drinking a cup of coffee. Uh, so uh, that one's uh, November-ish. But um, all right, let's let's segue into this one that's 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 coming out uh, next. When you brought up chicory, was there a reason I, within your book? Well, I I I thought you and I had the conversation about chicory and the idea that. You, you start, you, you brew to a chicory, you would go to festivals and say, pour this beer, and you, you would come up with another weird ingredient, or a different ingredient, whatever, yeah. um, and people would say, Sam, what, what are you doing here, buddy? Yeah. And, and so then you began to lean on this history of other um, places yeah. and draw from that. But one other quick thing, a chicory. So if you're messing around tomorrow and you've got time to kill, um, and I don't know where most of you are from, but if, if you go up in that neighborhood, which I should know the name of the neighborhood, but on the other hand, I live in St. Louis, why should I know DC neighborhoods? But, but it is, to me, it's a neighborhood around Wright Proper's Brew Pub. So that's easy for me. So the Shaw neighborhood. Go up around the Shaw neighborhood, get off the train and walk around, and you'll, you will see in the vacant lots that, that are about to become $600,000 houses. But right now they're vacant hots, lots, which are kind of cool. And you'll see these blue flowers around that are really cool. That's chicory. Yeah. If you pull that up, that chicory root, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. That's a beer ingredient. And it's just growing through the cracks of yep. asphalt in our nation's capital. Well, and, and the nice thing is actually also growing on dirt that will soon be inhabited by expensive houses. Yeah. But that's yeah. so, so as this one's coming around, so we mentioned earlier that sour was certainly a component of probably every ancient or hysteric you know, beer pre-sterilization, uh, pre-Louis Pasteur. And it's awesome to see so many beers out in that room by so many Indian American breweries embracing 
the, the idea of sour as a beautiful thing. Uh, in our brewery, we, we started doing it uh, a, a little over a decade ago with Festina Lente and Festina Pesh. Uh, and uh, our mid-Atlantic Delmarva scenes exploding with breweries that are, uh, you know, flying their freak flags in their own direction, and it's a beautiful thing. And I'm going to invite one of them up here. Brian, come up, because yeah. we brewed this beer together. This is my good friend Brian from Burley Oak Brewery in, in Berlin, in Berlin, Maryland. Beautiful town of Berlin, Maryland, where the movie Runaway Bride was filmed. <laughs> Hey, really in the house. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to ask you for a, a couple-minute monologue on you getting into the commercial brewing world uh, before we talk about uh, this this beautiful beer. Well, I was uh, at home reading books by these guys. <laughs> That's kind of how it all started. Uh, it all started in a a, a two uh, a two car garage, and um, <clears throat> I was reading Stan's books and trying to replicate, you know, almost every recipe and, uh, and you know, Sam's books and, and um, basically just brewing every Saturday. And then um, uh, I uh, lost my job to the uh, recession and um, didn't really know what to do. So my buddy who I was brewing with said, why don't you just do this? So five years later, I have a bigger garage, basically, and a whole bunch of people to help me clean up. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of the things that we've always done, though, was really try to brew with what we had uh, and really try to replicate older recipes. And uh, we always knew that going to the farmer's market and get, getting peaches in August and um, that, that we knew that that would be make the freshest beer and, and, the, and that would be really great um, ingredients. So... Um, yeah, now we've just kind of replicated that, and we're doing it uh, more and more now, and um, in a little uh, farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> but um, but so pretty much. Um, and you guys have had started experimenting with sours before we even worked on this beer together. And in fact, I believe some of the sours are some of your best-selling beers. Oh yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I never thought I would put a sour uh, beer in a can, and it it would actually. Uh, do well and it's our flagship now I think so um, yeah sorry Chicky so um, that's kind of crazy yeah um, so that kind of started with sour beers was kettle sours because we're in Berlin so why not make a Berliner Weiss right um, so that's when it all started about uh, about four and a half years ago we we made a Berliner Weiss and and nobody liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember when we first started distributing Festina Pesh uh, nine or ten years ago. We sent out the bottles, and literally, I think one fifth of it got sent back by our distributors. <laughs> We're like, "Hey, asshole! Your beer went sour. Learn how to make beer." Uh, so it's, when you're out in that room tonight, you can see, uh, you know, how, how far how far this this movement has gone. So. Moving it into the world of, of Stan's book and looking at indigenous ingredients, we were pretty thoughtful in trying to bring, bring ingredients into this collaborative world that encompassed our two uh, contiguous states. Can you talk about the ingredients? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Maryland, Delaware, we figured we would uh, put this together. Um, we brought uh, uh, ingredients from both states. Um, Sam had some beach plums that um, he had a forager pick from the, uh, the um, national seashores of Delaware. Uh, a beach plum is like, a, I guess it would be like a grape. It's really hard to, to pick all the, uh, the Delicious, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but it took a long time to oh, pick yeah. all those little stems and seeds yeah. out. Uh, it took it looked like a murder site. Our white t-shirts were just, <laughs> yeah. looked like human flesh. And, and Buckets what, of this. What yeah. else from Maryland? Uh, from Maryland, uh, we grow an indigenous rye that we had propagated from a small plot of land. And uh, I work with a really, really talented farmer. Uh, he grew it up, and then we had it malted uh, in Hadley, Massachusetts, at Valley Malt. Yep. And, um, and we also use uh, a house uh, strain of uh, lactobacillus to to sour the beer. Um, and then you brought some wheat, too, from Delaware. Yep, Delaware. So there's four local ingredients, unmalted two from wheat. each. Yeah. Unmalted wheat. Yeah. So we're trying to basically um, 
and put together a beer that, I mean, it was almost what, what a beer could have tasted like uh, back in the day. If, if you know, you got the souring organisms, you have uh, unmalted wheat, you have uh, local rye that was very prevalent in Maryland, and then uh, a fruit that grew, grew wild. So I could, I could, you know, this is all local indigenous uh, ingredients. Can we get the left hands on this one? How do you guys I, I, like this one? Huh? I don't know which one's the left. That's about that. And, and I, I think that's another important part, point you made there. It, um, it, if you look back 300 years ago, the, the, the biggest effort was just to find enough stuff that would ferment far enough that you could get an okay buzz. Right, right. And we would like to think it's progress. Now we're thinking about these other ingredients that can add flavors. So there are a lot of things being added to beers that were not added before, um, which opens up the world where you can say, we can taste this. It comes from right here, and, and that's something people are really appreciate. Um, first of all, for, uh, and we haven't asked this question before, uh, so how many of you are home brewers? Wow. That's yeah. a bigger number than I would have wow. thought. Nice. Awesome. And nice. You made and Charlie smile. It's, it's, it's really easy when you're home brewing to recognize you have this connection with your beer. For commercial brewers, there, there is, uh, so and we'll just keep having these polls. You can do it right-handed, left-handed. Uh, how many of you know about beers made by walking? By like what? None. Uh, beers made by walking started in Colorado. It's going. It started Colorado Springs, and Colorado. It's more on the West Coast, and it, it's it's a place um, where people who understand the local flora will go out walking around. Maybe with a commercial brewer, maybe not. Maybe home brewers walk around and say this. This is interesting. This is what it tastes like. Maybe it was used in tea before. Maybe it adds these sort of flavors. Um, in the case when it happens with commercial brewers, they turn around and make a beer. It does not need to be made with those ingredients. It may simply be inspired by those. I had a great uh, peach beer in Colorado with somebody who came back from one of those walks and thought about Palisades peaches, which are, in, are on the western slope, and, and he made the beer based upon that. When, when you talk, when you go to a festival and, they, and these beers are turned into festivals and somebody talks about that beer, you recognize what we just talked about, the connection between a brewer and his beer. And his local terroir. Right. And th those things totally fit in. You see that connection. And the next thing is when you're talking to them as a consumer, you recognize that makes that beer different. You're, you immediately connect with that beer. And that, that's what using local ingredients does. It makes those better. Amen. Steve, so. you probably have some yeah, questions for, out for, here. Well, sure. So you guys go. So um, I've been researching for serving agents in Central and Northern South America for like local indigenous beers. Um, You've been researching what there? Uh, preserving natural preserving agents. Okay. So, right. so there's a style of like chicha, that's made in, in Central and, and South Central America mm. that um, essentially takes chicha and will last up to like maybe four to six months. So uh, we've been trying to reproduce the technique, um, and I've been wondering if if you've heard of any stories of preserving agents of the naturally occurring outside of the traditional hops. Uh, you know, in, in the kind of the North, North American so the, you know, traditional uh, uh, you go, I'll, I'll, I'll do a quick answer right after yeah. you. No, I, my, my, my first, I'll be quick, which is, so I spent some time in Peru. It was the only country that I got to make chicha in, but chicha is a generic term for corn as the main fermentable substance. And then every region has their beautiful, you know, local to our interpretation of chicha. But in general, you know, what was so cool about going down there and doing chicha is in America, you know, if a, if a building serves beer, it has a neon in its window, right, generally. In, in, in the world of chicha, they, they show th that they have chicha in their hut that you can buy by putting over their doorway a bouquet of flowers. 
And the more vibrant and alive the flowers are, the more fresh the chicha is. So other than uh, adding other fermentable sugars after fermentation has taken off to give it more alcohol, to give it a longer shelf life, I kind of agree with what Stan said earlier, which is its freshness is mostly calibrated by days, uh, not weeks, from what, from what I've seen. Could people have figured that out? Yes, and add herbs. So you, you can take something which would not be true there, but certainly in the northern hemisphere, something like bog myrtle, which means I lived in New Mexico before I moved to St. Louis. In New Mexico, we didn't have many bogs. So the first time I made a beer without hops, I had to order bog myrtle from some, someplace else. But there, there certainly are herbs that add a certain amount of preservative. They are not the same as, as uh, isomerization of hops, though. We've so got a couple of we've we got a couple more couple, questions, and you yeah. tell us, Steve, how we're yeah, doing. Yeah, a couple of questions in the back, sure. and then I, I think maybe one more in the front, guy. and I think we're going to have to I wrap just, up uh, with that. Th thank you for your time, and I wish there was a university class like this for every university in the country. I wanted to ask, uh, with with uh, respect to what Stan had talked about about smoke, very simple example of of everyone experiencing smoke and not actually tasting it as a flavor. Um, you get a lot of uh, information about um, the ingredients, and you have a, a couple of cracks at maybe the process. And then you have to sort of think about what the typical example of that beer might have been. And it may not be something that everyone would totally enjoy at this point. I want you to start to talk about the creative process, like what you think that beer might have tasted like, what the best example of the time that beer might have tasted like, and what you think is something that is something that you want to represent. Whoa, you. Brian, you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's a good yes, question. yes, good question. Um, I, I think when I, whenever we design a beer, um, it's always good if it comes out the way we thought it should. <laughs> so, um, so that being said, uh, but we, we definitely want to make all the make it balanced in and I think I'm answering the question of we're trying to present a beer that um, I actually wasn't really paying attention but well, um, but give yeah. me this I love the question but sometimes the best uh, like awesome opportunities to release something is happy accidents yes. and so you go into you go into projects yes. like that can you give us an example of something that you make regularly that was a, a happy accident i'm spinning the uh, question but yeah 100 percent. so we made a red ale it was like one of the first beers we made five years ago and it was for my buddy's dad he just wanted a plain old red ale not hoppy not bitter just like, and uh we didn't know the um efficiencies of our of our brew house yet it was the second beer we've ever we ever made and it came out to be 9.1 percent red ale so. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good place because beer is a, a happy accident. Like, in far of us as, as humans figuring this shit out, beer is a happy accident. There, there are a lot of great mixed fermentation beers out there right now. But when you think about when something tastes great, so in 1883 was the first pure strain uh, isolated in Carlsberg. And you know, the downside of that is that Louis let us, yeah, this is, Louis understood how to do it. And it was Emil Hansen who said, we can separate it out. The downside is it, it led to a certain amount of dumbing down of beer. But a key thing is people understood, they talked about beer sickness. They wanted their beer not to have that sourness. So there were times when beer did not taste sour, when it did taste great when it was fresh. So people would have this beer at this great moment. What we recognize now is there's that great moment one time, and then a little later there's another moment, and later there may be another one. Of course, along the way there are also some uh, train wrecks. <laughs> we got one more? We got, one more. Yeah, we got another one back here. Or even two more. You decide, Steve. You're in charge. This is your, this is your driving. Depends on how fast you get through this one. You're driving. This last uh, beer reminds me of a good cider. How are the histories of cider and beer related? Uh, cider is wine. 
Beer Ciders. is beer. Ciders classified. <laughs> we got to get over this bacon. Cider is beer. Cider, this is a different product. I like his passion and I, I agree with it. But in terms of American history, colonial era cider was in volume bigger uh, than beer as we figured our shit yeah, out, yes, right? Yes. So it, it, it's a big part of our, our history from colonial America on. And it's cool to see a lot of breweries. We just did a beer with Sierra Nevada for beer camp where a, a large multi yep. uh, double digit percentage of the fermentables uh, comes from Delaware and uh, Vermont uh, apples. So um, I, I, don't, I don't vilify cider, but I totally agree. It's taxed as actually wine. Uh, I, I, an important thing to remember, what, what they did is they took apples, they put it in beer, they made the apples better, they did not make cider. Wow. So I'm interested in yeast strains. So I love yeast. Yes. Not, I mean, I'm a yes. female, of course. Who does it? All about the yeast. Who does it? Um, yeast, but multiple. I feel like it's not very talked about, um, especially for ancient yeast strains. So how did you decipher your yeast strain for, like, the chicha? Because there's so many different types of wild yeast that grow. I mean, Lambic, for instance, you go to a Belgian brewery, and the craisins fucking ridiculous because yeah. the yeast strain. Yeah. So how did you decipher the yeast strain for the chicha? Uh, so I'll, I'll, how about we answer this last one is just our favorite each of our uh, quick synopsis of a great yeast moment. Um, so uh, the chicha one uh, was uh, basically we, we, we would uh, lay out traps of, of, of uh, uh, to, to use this basically uh, fruit fly cologne, like some natural uh, chemical compounds that attracted uh, fruit flies. Uh, and uh, so the fruit flies would come back and then we would isolate what they had on their legs and, and grow it up uh, from that, and then we worked with a lab in Belgium to isolate the ones that actually could eat uh, sugars. Uh, but we've had other awesome moments that, that weren't of, of yeast epiphanies that, that weren't like that, like finding strains that worked well together, um, you know, uh, using champagne strains or, or bread strains. Uh, so that's my quick answer for, for Chicha because I want the other two to have an awesome yeast story. Because that is the fucking catalyst for why we see the gods on a night like tonight. So each of you guys take it out with a good yeast story from your work. I mean, for me, it's mixed fermentation, and we've really started playing with that lately. It's, uh, it's, a, it's Saccharomyces and Brettomyces. Um, Brettomyces is something that I've, we've been dealing with for about a year now, and we're absolutely in love with it. Like, we, we I mean, we come in the morning, and we're like, oh, God, what do you guys think about this? Red Sea, you know, <laughs> mixed with this, I mean, so for, for us, you know, these mixed fermentation um, it is, is, I feel like the new, where, where, where Burley Oak is, is taking our next steps is, we love bacteria, we love souring, but we love trying to affect the flavor profile of a beer, not with just hops, not with just uh, malts, but with yeast strain. And is, and there one, is there one heading towards production that these fine folks that live in the middle Atlantic <laughs> can find soon? <laughs> yeah. So uh, Acapulco Gold is our mixed fermentation IPA. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Brett C. and, uh, and, 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 and uh, it's Chico. Available. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. We do it once a quarter. Stan's going to take us out. Nice one, Brian. <laughs> so, Last comments to Stan. So, uh, Whose book is coming out in September? I'm giving right. one more pitch. So, American grown beer. Go to the GABF. <laughs> buy the book. So, so, first of all, if if you're thinking about a Brett based that you what you want for Brett and a great mixed fermentation, you walk out of this room. I would say go to Perennial Ales and have their Savant Blanc, which good. is also I think one uh, GABF Gold maybe. Uh, the other thing I would say about yeast, so are you a home brewer? You go to the American Home Brewers Conference? H.A., Baltimore. Nice. So you going, are you going to NHC? Friday morning, 10.15, Chris White talking about the family tree of ale yeast. That will open your eyes. So that's, that's, that's the yeast moment in the future.
to, to begin to think about where we get these from and how small changes, um, when, because yeast are constantly changing. Yeah, I, I understand a lot about hops. It takes to, to breed hops, you gotta wait a year. Yeast, you gotta like, wait like 14 seconds. So it's really cool how fast things change and what you can get. On the other hand, you think you've captured that moment, and those little boogers, they already mutate. changed over here. It used to be better. Those bitches <laughs> mutate. They mutate. Still All right, guys, out, absolutely. Hey, you know, 30 years ago, I got derailed from a career as a historian by brewing. Yes. So it's very exciting to me, and I can tell from all the questions that were out there, it's very exciting to you to hear where history ties into beer, beer ties into history, and the timeline of whom we all are and where we've come from. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for Thank a very enlightening talk. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2016, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2016, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.